We turn our Bibles uh, today to Genesis and chapter 1. Genesis and chapter 1. And uh, we're thinking today of the first words which God uttered, let there be light. It's one of the wonders of creation, isn't it? Close your eyes for a moment and imagine a life, an experience, a world without light. Defined as electromagnetic radiation within the portion of the electric, electromagnetic spectrum that is perceived by the human eye. Light, renowned for its speed, as we spoke to the children about moving at 186,282 miles per second. Light, renowned for its glorious colors. With each color, a different length of wave going from the shortest wave of red through orange, yellow, green to blue, indigo and violet. Light created on the first day of creation. So important for our bones, for plant life, for our mind. Light made by God, made for mankind. With these verses, verses 3 to 5, Douglas Kelly argues we remain within the first day of creation. He argues that verses 1 to 5 comprise the first day of creation. He maintains that the making of the bare materials of water and, and mud in verses 1 and 2, the hovering over this mass by the Spirit at the end of verse 2, and God speaking light uh, into the creation. He argues that this is God creating the three types of force and energy within the universe. The electromagnetic, the gravitational, and the nuclear. But whether verses 3 to 5 belong to verses 1 and 2 to form the first day of creation, we come to consider this formation of light. God saying, let there be light, and there was light. We want to think of it first of all from the biblical account. We want to think of it secondly from the theological perspective given by the apostle in Corinthians we want to think thirdly of a few scientific problems related to this first day of creation before we apply this day to our lives. Think of the biblical account in verses 3 to 5 of Genesis. Let there be light, and there was light. This first step in forming this mass of mud and water into a habitable planet for human life was the creation of light, natural light, physical light. Into the darkness surrounding the watery mass, God speaks and light shines. A light which 
is independent, it seems, from the sun and the moon and the stars which were formed on the fourth day of creation. A light which didn't dispel the darkness completely, but which would exist side by side with the darkness, suggesting that the watery mass is already moving around. Light and darkness, day and night, been formed on this day of creation. Von Raad suggests that the darkness is retained within our experience to remind us of that darkness which was there at the very beginning. Others suggest it's there to remind us of the changes of our experience from troubles into joys. The psalmist speaks about weeping, enduring for a night, and joy coming in the morning. The light and the darkness subsisting together. And this light with its source unknown to us is surely connected to to God's character who is light. It dwells in the light we can't approach to, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. John says in his first letter and his first chapter, God is light. Isn't it something of God's being being revealed? Isn't this first day something of the rays of heaven entering into life on earth? Let there be light. A light whose source was not the sun or the moon or the stars shining in to the darkness of that ancient mass which God had made. And this first day of creation, it it shows us God's power and greatness and authority, doesn't it? God speaks and the light appears. We say many things. We make many promises. We assert many aspirations. We give out many commands within our home. And sometimes nothing changes. But here is God. He speaks. Let there be light. And there was light. His sovereignty is indicated in the second verb of separating the light and the darkness. Can we imagine, begin to imagine what is involved in this? The third verb, he saw the light, that it was good. Here is God as moral governor. Here is God as the one who judges between good and bad, between virtuous and evil. He sees the light and he in his sovereignty takes this position. It is good. And he calls the light day and the darkness night. Another evidence of his sovereignty. And these four verbs which are used indicating he is God and Lord and creator. Light with its different length of waves. Light with its fascinating spectrum of colors. Light with the different frequencies of its vibrating atoms. Light. 
Einstein said. One of the incomprehensible features of our world is that it's comprehensible. That while we cannot grasp everything about the world God has made, we can grasp many things. There's order. There's unity. There's logic. And as we grasp those details, we're to worship. Isn't this the point of verses 3 to 5? It doesn't give us a scientific analysis, a detailed breakdown of all that happened here. And sometimes we get sidetracked and we we get hung up on this. Well, where did this light come from? And how can there be light immediately on the earth? Does it not mean there's long periods of time involved in this? And we address those questions and we seek to grasp after the things that we're never going to know. The purpose of the record is lost in us. That we are to worship this amazing God. He said, and it was done. The more we learn about light and its properties and its function and its colors, the deeper our worship is to be. The biblical account. But secondly, the theological application. This is from the passage we read in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. If we read Genesis chapter 1 and we wrestle with the science and with the linguistics and we parse the verbs found in these three verses, we've not gone far enough. The biblical, the canonical revelation, and that's how we're to understand every verse of Scripture in its full canonical sense. That's where we get to the proper meaning of the text. It takes us beyond the explanation of words and the understanding of science to this theological application. Paul uses this first day of creation to describe the spiritual condition of his hearers as he preaches the gospel. He's concerned with the persecutions he's experiencing, with the rejection by the Jewish people who cannot see Jesus in the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's concerned with the Gentiles who cannot see Jesus' greatness above the greatness of their empirical gods. And and as Paul thinks of the commitment of the Jews and the commitment of the Gentiles to false religions, he says they're in darkness. A darkness just like that primeval darkness in Genesis chapter 1. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. But Paul envisages regeneration, the saving acts of God, 
of God enlightening the darkened minds of unbelievers, and he likens it to God's action on the first day of creation. God who said, he records in 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who shined into the primeval darkness, his glorious light that raised from heaven, reaching down into earth. He has got to act. He has got to speak. He has got to enter into the darkness of unbelievers' minds and give them the light of the knowledge of Jesus, the God of grace. So the apostle draws on the details of this first day of creation and he brings it into our hearts our lives, our experience? Are we those who are in the darkness of unbelief? Are we those who are in the light of knowing Jesus Christ, the revelation of God? Professor Brian Cox, who appears on our television on numerous occasions, a a leading student and authority, on on our planetary systems. He says that science might have a gap for God. David Attenborough, who for years has been on our televisions and spoken about our planetary systems, he says that there might be a God. Dr. John Lennox, also a gifted professor and leader in studies on our planetary system, he says, God is not dead. And science shows why. Here are groups of gifted intellectuals, big-brained people, but some are in the darkness and some are in the light. God, who in the beginning said, let there be light, has performed this enlightening work in some of their minds, but not in others. And as we reflect on this, doesn't this emphasize to us and and for us and illustrate before us as the apostle uses it, that we need God to work, God to speak, God to act. That in our witnessing we plead with people, we talk to people, we change our style, we we adjust our, our methods, we persevere in our testimony. But we need God to speak, God to act, God to enlighten the minds of unbelievers. Charles Spurgeon one day was preaching enthusiastically in a church. It was the days of gas lamps, it was the winter time, it was extremely dark outside and midway through the sermon... The lights went out. 
And as any preacher worth his salt would do, he just carried on and he finished his sermon. And afterwards, he learned that one person became a Christian when the lights were on. And another person became a Christian when the lights were off. The person who became a Christian when the lights were on were amazed by the glory of Jesus. The other person was repulsed by the darkness of sin. And this is the theological application, the darkness of unbelief. Are we there? The light of knowing Jesus as Son of God and only Savior. Are we there? God, say, let there be light. And there will be light. The biblical account, the four verbs, the theological application, the light and the darkness. And thirdly, scientific agonies. There's light, but no sun. And science has wrestled with this, and Christian scientists have discussed this. And at the end of the day, they don't know the source of this light in this first day of creation. The language used in the fourth day of creation indicates that the planets, the sun, the stars were interconnected with that light that was created on the first day. But where does that light come from? There is no definite answer to that question. Calvin writes, Therefore the Lord, by the very order of creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. We're in the presence of a miracle, aren't we? And we can't explain miracles. Transport yourself to the shores of Galilee, to that day when the 5,000 were sitting on the banks of that sea. And the little boy's lunchbox was brought to Jesus with the loaves and the fishes. And Jesus begins to administer and hand out these loaves and fishes to the disciples. Now where did the miracle happen? If you apply scientific understanding to that event, where did the multiplication take place? When Jesus handed over the loaves and the fish, was that when the increase in loaves and fish happened? Was it in the box itself or was it in the baskets when the disciples went out around the crowd? Where did the miracle happen? When we try and break it down and every miracle, the, the water into wine, the healing of the leper, when we try and break it down, we recognize we're in the presence of the supernatural. And so it is with the days of creation. We have the text 
We seek to ascertain what the biblical text means. But there are areas of what is said that are beyond scientific explanation and we receive by faith in a divinely inspired word of God. God saw the light, that it was good. It was good because it worked well. It did what God intended. It provides those colors. It brings vitamin D to our skin, to our bones. It helps the plants to grow. It helps our minds. It helps our sleep patterns. It helps the rhythm of our beings. This light suited the purpose which God intended it to meet. And God saw that it was good. It was suited to his purpose. And on the seventh day, God surveyed all his creation. And the text says he saw that it was very good. All that he had made, this light shining down upon the planet with its waves or particles, with its colors, with its properties, with its influences and effects, he saw that it was good. And today, you and I could imitate the pattern of God. And on this Sabbath day, we too could reflect on the light. We could investigate it a little bit more. We could learn a little more about its properties, about its colors, about its benefits to us. And we too, with worshipful hearts, could conclude that it is good. It worked well. It is good because it helped mankind. This light, giving light to the rotating earth, God could see the potential, the benefits that it would bring to humanity, to the plant life, to the whole world that he was purposing and planning. It was good because it helped mankind. Here is an insight into God's heart. Here is his care. Here is his love. He is forming this, as Matthew Henry says, not so he can see what he's doing. He is forming this light for our benefit, for our enjoyment, for our help as we live here. Do we doubt God's love today? Do we doubt his care for us? His thoughtfulness? His commitment? Do we think we're peripheral, unnoticed, unloved by and think of him making the light? It's greatness, it's variety, it's beneficent impact upon our lives. This is God, this is his commitment to us, his love for us. He cares for us. He knows us. And God saw that it was good not only because it worked well, not only because it helped mankind, but it was good because it showed Jesus as God saw the light. He saw in his eternal purpose that this would become a metaphor, a message, a medium 
for making Jesus known. In Isaiah 42, God's perfect servant is described as the light of the nations. Isaiah 49, Jesus is the light of the nation. Simeon, who receives the child Jesus in the temple, praises God that this is the light of the nations. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As God saw the light, he saw his son. And as we see the light, we are to see that it is good because it leads us to Jesus Christ, who is the light. And if we follow him, we will have the light of life. The biblical account, the theological application, the scientific agony. God saw that it was good. Matthew Henry comments on this day of creation. He said, this was not only the first day of the world. This was the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, God said, let there be light. Matthew Henry takes us to that other cataclysmic first day of the week. Outside Jerusalem at the garden tomb, and the ladies arrive there, and it is empty, and they're informed by the angels, he is not here. He is risen. And again, God is saying, let there be light. The light of grace, the light of gospel, the light of salvation, the light of mercy. Jesus is the light today. Let us follow him. And we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life.